0: Welcome to the Genetics Podcast. I'm really excited to be here today with Caroline Craven, who is also known as The Girl with MS. She is a writer, blogger, and MS advocate. Caroline, it's great to have you here. Thanks so much for taking the time.
1: You bet, Patrick. It's great to be here. I'm looking forward to this.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So you have quite a few different skills, including public speaking, writing, business. I know you're trained as a life coach. um, And it seems to me like you found a way to combine these skills in addition with something that affects you personally, which of course is your diagnosis with MS. I'm I'm just curious, how did you actually get into blogging and being active on social media and public speaking in the context of MS?
1: When I first uh, got hit with MS, it hit me so hard. I couldn't walk, couldn't see really unassisted, and I had to medically retire from my business career, um, in marketing and all that. So uh, I started getting into writing more of the cathartic process, and the blog started taking place. Um, then all of a sudden I started being asked to write articles for different people and health journalism and all of that. So that expanded that part of my life. Um, And then doing the research and all of that just helped me become healthier in my living. So becoming certified as a life coach, it really gave me the life skills I needed to know to help manage MS. Uh, Becoming certified as a holistic nutrition educator helped really was helping me um, find a better way to live. But then I found other people needed to know this information and wanted to know it. So the blog has just grown from that over the last 10 or 12 years now since that's really been active. So,
0: Yeah, absolutely. How many posts have you written, Ballpark, in the, did you say, 10 or 12 years that you've been writing?
1: Oh, my gosh. <laughs> A lot of them. Um, in On the blog post, probably thousands. And And it's interesting when I go back and look because in the very beginning, it was more of just – my journal, me coming out, like what's going on with me, what's going on every day, um, stream of consciousness sort of writing. And then you can see as it starts to change, I start adding a lot more other information. People would ask me about things and, you know, what, what about this? What about that? And I started expanding more into other things and it really I have a very active mind. And I think a lot of people with MS do just they're kind of type A go getters, they want to be busy. And when you find something that you can do within your confines, it it helps.
0: Well, I mean, from the from the posts that I've seen, it seems like they're really varied, including, you know, like you mentioned, personalized experience. But you also I think there was a recent one where you dug into some uh, a, a new drug that just recently passed clinical trials. So it's uh, it, it's everything from the very personal <laughs> all the way through to the the scientific. You don't have a scientific background, though, so you must have really just self-trained and learned how to read these papers and and understand uh, as part of writing a thousand blog posts, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, and especially what's probably helped me the most on that was write, uh, writing for Healthline and doing the health journalism. i um, probably over a hundred of those articles, but diving into these clinical research, it's really, it fascinates me. It turns on my whole geek side and my nerd side. And I'm just like, love all that research. And I'm like, and then you really learn a lot more about what's going on. So when people say, oh, it's a T cell reactor or B cell reactor, or whatever, at least you have some idea, you know, and trying to help, people understand that yeah I've, I've gotten to interview a couple interesting people a couple new fda drugs we have so many treatments out there now and options which is great and i think the most important thing is that people get knowledge on all these different options
0: how do people approach that we actually the previous episode to this one was with dr barry singer who you actually introduced me to and he mentioned in that podcast that there are 20 i think more than 20 now approved drugs. Um so how how do people go about making that decision is it um yeah is is that something you've written about I'm, I imagine it probably is
1: You know what that's funny I'm I'm actually writing about it right now or been working on on a piece on that because there's so many options out there now when I was first diagnosed we had three options the ABC shots you know so you want to inject yourself daily weekly or every other day you know right. that was it now there are pills there's infusions um, I think the most important thing what I found is that I found a very good MS neurologist that I'm working with. And that really helps me be able to have these conversations like these two new drugs. Is there one I might want to go on that might be better for me? I heard a very interesting podcast just yesterday. I was listening to or watching a webinar and it was reminding me about the importance. One doctor was saying is that the most important drug is the one somebody will take. Or somebody right. will use. So it's a once a day pill or is it a self-injection once a month or do you have to go to a hospital twice a year for an infusion? But other things to consider too is the level of your MS and what risks you need to or might want to take. Um, but what, what a lot of research has agreed on is that they do agree that an earlier approach with medicine can prevent Further progression on down the line, and that's intriguing. You know, a lot of people are are not on disease modifying therapies and and go the new, natural and holistic. And I've done a lot of that, so I'm I'm more intrigued now with the newer medicines out. Like what what might be an option?
0: Yeah, well, and and I think there also seems to be a, a potential collision of those two worlds because many pharmaceutical companies are working on cannabinoid therapies right and and cannabis is one of the one of the very you know very widely used in you know medical medical marijuana and um also some of the F- I think there's an FDA approved uh something from GW Pharma so there's uh, these these two worlds are colliding right and the natural wow. is becoming uh becoming part of the the pharmaceutical
1: pipeline <laughs> interesting It's a Sativex, which is, yeah, by GW. It's not approved in the United States. Yep. It's approved all in like 25 other countries. Um, And yeah, and it's very interesting. They are doing a lot of research. They only do uh, FDA approved drugs. And I know they're looking a lot into the use of, you know, cannabinoids for spasticity and stuff like that. So.
0: You mentioned Healthline earlier, and and I've heard of it, but I honestly don't know very much about it. What is it? Uh, it what, what is Healthline? How did you get involved writing for them?
1: Yeah, healthline.com, it's a um, medical research, um, it's a little bit like WebMD, just the a, a kind of same concept, a lot of research, a lot of articles, everything's fact-based. I was actually approached by them. Um, by their editor, they wanted someone to start writing who knew the disease and could understand and relate to the people, but also could get into and meet with the doctors and understand what the clinical research is. Yeah.
0: To be that bridge, really. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I think um, I think one a lot of people are cluing into this. So I know the the British Medical Journal, the BMJ, has now a, a number of patient advocates on staff, and I think they require in any research paper that's submitted, I think it has to be reviewed by by a patient, um, or that you know somebody can correct me on this. I, I won't be correct on the details, but it seems like more people are embracing the importance of of people like you that can bridge those those two worlds.
1: Yeah, it. um, I really started to see a change about ten years ago. I think Um, eight to ten years ago, the pharmaceutical companies really started grasping the importance of uh, the MS is more than just a drug or a medicine or a disease. It's multifaceted. So dealing with life. I mean, I think my first world tour was probably seven or eight years ago with Madeline Stowe. You know, it was kind of fun and high, but you know, you got to really meet with like a lot of people and talk to them about skills that you learned and it was fascinating to see, I think, and it still is, to to be able to work with these companies because they do understand that it's a lot more than the drug and they want to be there for their patients.
0: What what was the world tour? Where where did you go? What did uh
1: <laughs> it was pretty fun. We went to um no, no, it's gonna be an MS memory uh <laughs> jog, but um I know we did Houston, um Orlando, Pittsburgh. And I think a couple others. So it wasn't a full huge world tour, but it was close enough. And um, I got, other than Pittsburgh, I actually I got to go uh, fly fishing in the other two places, which is a hobby right. of mine. So that's often where I remember it's like, oh, yeah, I caught that fish. And we were down in Florida and we were, yeah.
0: That's great. So we visiting researchers and and kind of pharmaceutical companies. And what, what was that? Was it organized uh, or was it just a spur of the moment thing?
1: That one was organized and that one was more working on a specific drug with a specific audience. Um, Since then I've worked with um, a lot of different other companies where you meet with researchers or pharmaceutical people um, working on, you know, what are some of the key messages. Um, A few years ago, one drug company um, just came out with an ad that really negatively affected people's response to it. Because right. it didn't quite take into all levels of MS, um, so I noticed that all you know everybody's sort of very aware now that they need to have that patient advocacy.
0: Yeah, and and have to really understand who the who the user of the product is, right? And I think to the point you made earlier that you heard in in the webinar you were a part of that if it's not something that resonates with people that they'll actually take and use and solves a real problem, then all the all the great science is um, is is for nothing in some cases
1: yeah yeah and it it's it is it's very interesting and with the drugs especially once the um just to bring this up real quick but the um once a generic comes into the market that changes the whole scene we actually have states here in the united states that prohibit companies from offering financial assistance once a generic is available really yeah, so Federa just lost their patent early. They're still fighting it. But patients on that coming out in January, if they don't change to the generic in time or don't switch drugs or don't talk to their doctors, their doctors may not even know, um, they could get hit with a big surprise on their on their copay. Um, not all states are like that. I just sent out a little email blurb on that and was working on something. I just found it fascinating because I've not been in that position. And my doctor was like, that's something people need to know, you know, so a little different, but I wanted to bring that up because I thought that's really interesting.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I mean, I you brought up the kind of sea change or shift in thinking 10 to 12 years ago, where, where at least the pharmaceutical industry started to think a lot more carefully about that. I I wonder how it has changed since then and, and what what was it like then and what is it like today. Has there has there been much change since then or do you feel like there's um you know that there, there's still a lot of work to be done?
1: I still see a lot of change and um just alone and, and I wish I had the numbers I don't right now on top of my head, but like the, the amount of dollars say that um the National MS Society is putting into research regarding diet. NMS has become huge right? Um, you know you look at the different doctors and whether you agree with their diets or not but they've done a lot to figure that out and I learned that early on my diet was key gut health was key in keeping me healthy um, and, and because of patients demands to a lot of these associations their dollars are starting to go for a lot more alternative drugs as well as important things like neurofilament light chains, things like that. Neurofilament light chains. It's hard for me to remember, but that's just one of those things that are coming up. You hear more and more about it. So there's also, there's just a lot of growth in that and a lot, I would say it's continuing to grow.
0: You mentioned gut health. I think I saw you post on Twitter at some point that at some point you actually had um, you had been diagnosed with inflammatory bowel disease, right? Or Crohn's or colitis uh,
1: ulcerative colitis. Ulcerative yes. colitis. Back, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Tell
0: me about that. Cause that's, that's um, relatively common. Um, at least it's, it's much more common with people who have MS than in the general population. Right. Oh,
1: that's that's interesting. Actually. Yeah. I, it's, it was a very interesting case cause I had it for a couple of years when I was living up in Oregon, up in Eugene, and that was when I started getting into um, Chinese medicine and acupuncture and doing alternative stuff. That was sort of the kickoff because the doctor wanted me to go on these sulfa pills or something. And I remember my friend who was a acupuncturist and, you know, yogi, he was like, mm, let's try some natural stuff. So we went through breathing. We went through all that. I just had a colonoscopy a week ago or so, and they're like, "You're clean for another ten years." They can't even find anything, and it used to show up. I had two different doctors tell me I had it, so um, it, very interesting. You know, I don't really know what happened. I shifted definitely, but yeah, I've learned. I'm learning more and more about that and related to people with MS.
0: To another IB, IBD, um, uh, really great active patient advocate guy named Seb Tucknot, and he was able to basically get his, um, ulcerative colitis completely under control with, you know, combination of diet exercise. Um, he was on treatment and, and was, you know, no longer needed to be on it because he was able to find a way to manage it. Uh, Of course, this isn't the case with everyone. And, um, you know, it's not, there's no one size fits all, but it is, um, you know, it's, it's really nice to see actually that the industry is recognizing that it's not a silver bullet, right? There's not just a, um, you know, one size fits all approach or, or that, a that a pill is going to, or an injection is going to always be the case that it's, it's really a complex diseases require complex uh, approaches (laughs) sometimes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that brings up an important point about the fact that one, the disease modifying therapy is really approaching the disease itself. um, And so does lifestyle change and all that. But that also really helps the symptoms, you know. Um, It's amazing what just adding some of the wrong food in your diet, you you know, for a particular person can affect you the next day or not enough sleep or something like that, you know.
0: Yeah, definitely. On the topic of patient advocacy and social media, I saw that you had some of your accounts removed at one point on Facebook and Instagram. And I think this is in in context of some wider concerns around the role that these platforms play in, um, you know, a- having access to people's information, but also, you know, pulling, pulling down c- accounts because people don't like the, um, you know, the nature of the content that's being put out there. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that and whether there was any, Resolution because it seems to me like it's a, it's an essential tool for people like you to, to do the work that you do. obviously your blog is standalone which is great um, and, and no one can really take that away from you but um, you know the the social platforms are relatively fragile as as, um, as people have often found
1: it was very interesting it was right around our it was in May I was told that my Facebook account was closed. And by doing that, it took away my admin administration rights to the Girl with MS on Facebook, on my Facebook page, where I had, you know, a couple thousand, 25,000, 3,000 followers that I communicate with at a daily, on a daily basis. And not only that, but that's part of my work. When you're an advocate, you'll see certain posts that are done that say ad or sponsored or something. So that was part of my livelihood. Um, it is They took it down. They asked me to verify. I I verified myself. I did not get verified. They said, you've been down for good. Instagram does whatever Facebook does. So Instagram just took me down as well. So I lost all of my followers there. I am still working on getting this back up. I, I actually am finally in touch via one of the big pharmaceutical companies with somebody at Facebook that is actually helping because there is no way to contact them. It's... There is no customer service. Um, they have they believe I was compromised and I was hacked. And I think I was too, because as soon as they got me up and running, I got hacked again, unless I was in Vietnam last week, which I know I wasn't. So <laughs> the interesting thing is they still can't get me on to the, I, I'm still not on the admin for Girl With MS Facebook page. So it's all kind of sitting still, which has been very frustrating. I, I created new accounts so that I could keep up with what I needed to see, because this all happened during COVID quarantine and it's bad enough not being able to go outside, being able to see people, being able to social, you know, gather, but to have your entire identity wiped off of Facebook. I mean, think of that 12 years of memories of photographs of every MS group. You could go to your support group, your friends, your family, you're gone. I had friends die during COVID that I didn't even know died because I couldn't I couldn't see the news on, on, on that. So it's been a really interesting challenge. I've had a lot of people offer, but finally I'm now getting, I'm now getting through. So we're getting there and hopefully I'll have admin rights to that page again, because for so many reasons, it's important for us to have that and they build up a strong social. They need to be able to support it.
0: What other options exist to to connect with people? Is uh, obviously you have your blog, um, you have email email lists, which are difficult for anyone to take away. Facebook and Instagram are 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 pretty commonly used. It, what else is there? Are there are there any other alternatives, or are those really the ones? And podcasting, I suppose.
1: I use Twitter a lot. Um, I have quite a lot of followers. On I mean, for an MS girl over there, people. Uh, tend to share things because it's short and sweet and all that. And you get a lot of good, quick, you know, the snapshots of it all. That's the thing is that each one offers something different. So it's nice if they could all work well together. Um, LinkedIn is a great one because you get, um, say, maybe a higher level of education or not, no, I shouldn't say, a higher, higher level of writing might be or, or more research papers might be in there. So sometimes I'll find different things there. But I feel like those are basically it, you know, you're trying to get out there. And um, so you're trying to find these ways to to talk to people.
0: Have you ever tried one of the more specialized patient social networks? So there are a number that I know off the top of my head are Health Unlocked, um, Inspire, karenity patients like me we had um when paul wicks who works with us here at sano was um there for a long time they seem like they're they're obviously very successful and and people use them but they're clearly not on the scale that facebook and instagram are so I'm, i'm curious whether you've you've used those at all
1: i do i do i actually i actively use belong um yes yeah the belong ms app um I find that one very helpful for me. I can hop on it and it's just very anonymous. Um, you can help people out. You can answer questions, but in and actually I found out about that sort of after my Facebook debacle, because as soon as I did, that was the one I got on and it kind of saved right. me, you know, it was like that, you know, and, um, And anyone can download that. It's just a free app, you know, but, but a lot of interesting information in there and ways to share and talk to the community. So yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up because that's been a, that's been a big one. And I think there's a, you know, there are ones out there, you know, but like I said, I use Belong. Um, and that's been, I think Belong MS, Belong.life.
0: You mentioned how you know. Some, I think most of your content is really just what what you want to say and what you want to get out there. But cool. you do have people that yeah. that want to run sponsored posts or or content. How how does that work? And what is the best practice in the industry? Do do you know if, if you're working with a pharmaceutical company to to you know review a new pharmaceutical product that they're working on or, or putting out there? Do they give you editorial control over what you put out what is the is is there a best practice because i think whenever something new like this happens and and um people start to use new technologies to reach out there's always uh you know there's always different methodologies around how it's deployed and 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 what people like and what they don't like
1: yeah there is a lot of legal reviews (laughs) reviews <laughs> that come up with anything done through the pharmaceutical companies. I try to be really clear. Like I'll put like, this is not a sponsored, you know, post. So this is just my own opinion. I find something interesting and I want to write about it. Um, a lot of times what's interesting, they, what, what the companies like to do is talk about ways to just live better with MS. They don't yeah. usually talk about their specific drug. Um, they may, but there's usually, there's a lot of guidelines. Um, they're all a little different, but they're all pretty much, you know, they'll, they'll give you the guidelines. They've got legal that reviews everything. All social media posts are usually, you know, are reviewed and all of that. Um, but their content, um, often they'll say, you know, here's the topic, what, what what would you like to you know? How do you want to present it? What do you think is the best way to reach your audience? And so they really like to work and make that connection and not just tell people what's going on. I think they've learned over the years that that's what people want to hear.
0: They want authentic, uh, authentic you, right? That's uh, that's what they signed up for.
1: <laughs> yes, the authentic side. Sometimes it might be too authentic, but you know, no. <laughs> I
0: don't. I don't think there's there's such a thing. <laughs> I'm interested in, you know, as as we close up here, a couple more thoughts from you on what you see on the horizon, you know, both in both in patient advocacy and and, you know, I think you're an expert in that clearly, but also in in the field of MS. What what are you most excited about from a either research perspective or or in general how the field is evolving?
1: I want to go back real quick because it'll answer this question too as well as when we we're talking about the social media I think what's been really fun too is watching the growth of YouTube and the, and the audio, uh, the videos. Um, yeah. I, and obviously that's like a younger, we, what we're seeing is this whole younger generation coming up with MS and stepping up to the plate and saying, we want to advocate. And that to me is really exciting because all of this advocacy really just began really in the last 10 years more. I mean, it seems like even though people have had it for years, but um, you see these young kids coming up and with so many fun ideas and just different things, getting the word out there. Um, awareness is so key. And I think as we, as we start building more awareness with it and as the research starts to continue to develop, I mean, Over 20 drugs, we've had three new FDA-approved drugs this year for MS. That's amazing. And um, I think the more they put in, they being research people, both in ways to look for a cure course, but they need to know exactly. I mean, they have a general idea of what causes it, but how can we manage people's lives better? And what are some of the studies and researches out there? Like we talked about the complementary and different alternative ways to help people live their full quality of life.
0: Is there anything that you feel like is is missing? I mean, I, for me, one of the powers of giving you know, people like you having a prominent seat at the table is that you can identify what the real problem is because scientists often don't have MS if they're working on MS, so they can you know do their best to understand how the how the disease works and and work towards um, things like that. But I'm I'm wondering if there's anything that you feel like um, is is still there's just still a disconnect between what what people want and and where the research community is focusing their efforts.
1: Great question. I think one thing. And it's it's a little bit off on that. But one thing where there's a disconnect is that I'm very fortunate. I live in the Los Angeles area, pretty big area. Um, But it was still hard for me to find a good MS doctor. Right. Even though I've got insurance and all that. I went, because my original MS neurologist was wonderful, diagnosed She was great. And then she retired, which... I never really thought doctors could retire, you know, all yeah. of a sudden she's gone oh, they do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. and I must have seen five different doctors that gave me some of the worst advice, worse information. MS wasn't even their thing. They would have just stuck me on a pill. There's, and now I'm with a really good person again, who knows a lot, who's studied COVID, who studied MS, who's been on research. Um, There's a lot of people out there that don't have access to that kind of care. And I think that's still a big disconnect. You know, you think of just even the smaller towns or real rural America um, and even some of the doctors who aren't up on what's really going on out there, you know. So I think I'd like to see that whole area improve.
0: What solutions do you see for that? Uh, I'm curious whether you have any ideas on how how those either access to the great great neurologists can be improved or scaled, or or how we can better as a society train train doctors and neurologists in this case to um, to be great.
1: It's a tough question, but I mean, tough. I think there's a couple things there. I think one thing that I've seen recently is. Um, Dr. Boster, a lot of people follow him on social media. He um, was inspired at a young age, I think it was 11 or 12, wanting to be a neurologist because his somebody in his family had it and I'm so I can't remember the details, but I just remember he knew it at an early age. but seeing these young energetic doctors, Dr. Singer, Dr. Boster, they're all incur- and they're out there on social media yeah. and so they're out there encouraging, I think other people, to start getting, you know, more involved in MS research, and maybe they can be inspirational for that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think that's a big key thing. Um, I have heard that more and more people are wanting to, you know, study MS, um, but I don't have numbers or anything like that. But you know I don't know i a lot of people are trying a lot of organizations are trying to get say books into the hands of as many people as possible um to get their research into the hands of as many people as possible. I think telemedicine could actually play a huge role in this um, you know if if I lived in in a smaller town you know if I could at least talk to my doctor quarterly or whatever and then go see somebody else once a month or once a year or something to actually do the physical part. You know, I think there's a lot of opportunity there, which I had not thought about. Um, I think telemedicine is going to play a big role in that. So I think we need to get some money and research behind that. And we know it works. We've done the research. We know. And you know, so that, that could be next step. Maybe.
0: I mentioned Dr. Singer earlier and you just mentioned him now. And I was just so blown away by what a great neurologist and, and person and communicator he was. And I think if, if we have more people like him that can take the time to put that information out through podcasts, YouTube videos, it, it just is a, you know, it's a zero cost thing, you know, except for his time, it's zero cost distribution to get that out to, to millions of people. Um, and I think it's just a, you know, just a great way to scale this. And if you couple that with telemedicine, um, which is something that funnily enough, he also he also brought up um, because of COVID, it's I think it's not currently paid for by most insurers, uh, health care systems in the US, but it probably will be now because it's it's a great way to allow people like, um, you know, who, who may not have access to, to a great neurologist to even have a call once a year. Um, with, with, a with a more specialized person, even if they go to their local, um, you know, their, their local neurologist more frequently.
1: Yeah, no, I've, I, I've called on Dr. Singer a couple of times. <laughs> We've done some media tours together and stuff, and he's just always got such great insight. It's like, does this make sense? Does this make sense? And, and, and it is, it's interesting. Um, Yeah. I, I, but I was, I did feel finally so fortunate to find my new neurologist here. So that was uh but I still talk to those guys and just hearing what they post and that's where I get a lot on Twitter and then they'll switch over to YouTube and stuff like that. But yeah, there's a lot of good information now where there used to just be a lot of bad information about bee stings and, right. you know, different things. I mean, it's, uh, it's actually good to see real stuff. Absolutely
0: as a final question here, I, I was interested, we haven't talked about COVID really the whole time, but I, I was interested in how things have changed for you as a result of COVID and, and what things, you know, good or bad, do you see sticking for good and, and which things you think are, <laughs> are, uh, are, are hopefully or likely not sticking around? <laughs>
1: um, well, it's a, yeah, COVID has been interesting here. Um, I had a couple just flus or colds or something. So I was sick for a little while. Um, I did uh, just recently get tested just because I wanted to make sure that I was clean. And I was, um, I I think, you know, the good stuff was actually what I appreciated was the telemedicine and, and being able to still talk to my doctors that way. Um, I just had my first in-person visit the other day, but I'd love to even just keep doing a mix of that. Um, lifestyle. I think one thing though, that can be a little difficult is that sometimes people with MS have a tendency to isolate and they can isolate. It's easy to isolate and it's easy to, Oh, I don't need to go out. You know, I'm tired. I'm fatigued. Let me just do this. Um, but that's not necessarily the healthiest, you know, that's something I've got to always remind myself like, okay, have I gone for a walk or have at least gone out and Seen something other than my desk and my computer, whatever my house, you know, um, that social interaction. Yeah, um, and then then I think just overall wellness is probably the same. I almost feel like I've taken a little worse care of myself since COVID, and I hate to admit it, but um, I feel that like it's coming back, so that's good.
0: <laughs> that's great. Yeah, well, you at least live in a part of the world where you can you can get outside three hundred and. 50 days of the year, probably based on the weather.
1: That's true. That's true. We just, we've had bad air quality because we had a lot of fires going on, but um, it's finally a little bit better, but no, you're right. We're, we're very fortunate and just the little things, you know, just going out and watching the birds, you know, and watching butterflies and checking out the flowers and just really getting out of your space for a while. Um, Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, great. Caroline, this has been uh, this has been really incredible. Thank you so much for for taking the time. Um, if people want to follow you, you've you've got the great uh, handle across pretty much every platform at the girl with MS on on Twitter, uh, Facebook. Once you get it back, I think they should still follow it, and then hopefully yeah. Mark Zuckerberg will listen to this and and figure out how to get <laughs> you back on there and <laughs> and its website as well. Uh, the girl with MS is it dot com.
1: Yep. Yep. The girl with MS.com. And I usually just end and say, take that MS. It's my big tagline there.
0: I love that. I love that. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Patrick.